This is Darrell Alia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 201. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye what is going on good people welcome back to a brand new episode a brand new installment of the before the millions podcast this is installment two zero one and as usual i'm your host deray olalaye and on today's show, uh, we have Mr. David Holman on the show. And David is a longtime investor who, over time, has built a business, has built a company that is not just all about profit and the bottom line, but also doing good in his local community. And... Some people may take that really, really lightly, like, oh, yeah, do good, do good. Yeah, I mean, that's easy. You just, you know, give money to the homeless, things of that nature, and you keep on moving about your day. But Dave has decided to take it a step further. And in his venture to do good, he's been able to build a quite profitable business. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about David's business. We're going to talk about the rental portfolio that he has, and we're going to talk about his specific strategy for filling his units. Now, Dave is all about energy efficient moves, you know, replacing fossil fuels with heat pumps, discussing the pros and cons of insulation and, you know, when to invest in things like a window replacement, things that, again, are eventually going to help the overall carbon footprint of his units, but also cutting costs and doing good for the planet. Now, today's episode, we focus specifically on the tenant demographic that Dave is allowing to occupy his rentals. And I drew a lot of parallels between Dave's business and my business. Although I'm turning less and less units into rentals these days, the demographics of the individuals that I work with that are buying the properties that I'm selling are very similar to the demographics of the people that Dave is helping become renters. Now, we'll talk about this on the episode, of course, but refugees, asylum seekers, and a lot of individuals who have been, whether they've been displaced, they're fleeing their country because of war, there's no opportunity, whatever the case may be, right? They find themselves in a situation where they're in a foreign land, 
They don't understand the rules and regulations. They don't have housing. They don't know how to get their first or next job, how to feed their kids. So there are programs and incentives and nonprofits out there that help put together a family that may just, you know, have come from overseas that don't really know the regular rules of the U.S. or or the U.K. for that matter. And they're a simulation into a society that they're not used to, that is super foreign, can be daunting, can be intimidating. So again, these nonprofits, these companies, and these governmental agencies have put together a ton of things, whether it's a medical plan, whether it's helping find them employment, or again, helping find these individuals housing. There's a ton of things that have been put in place to help individuals who find themselves in these situations. So what Dave does is he actually houses asylum seekers. He houses refugees. And he works with these agencies to make sure that it's a profitable business for him. And oftentimes it may be an even more profitable venture than if he were to go out and find tenants on his own, which is what 99% of investors do. Reason being, just a quick example is, Last year, 2020, when COVID hit, many investors, including myself, were worried about what's going to happen next. Are we going to be able to earn? Are we going to be able to collect rental income? You know, the government is putting on this moratorium, which allows tenants to stop paying rent. What's going to happen? Are we going to lose out on our investments? Are we going to have to apply for grants and loans and deferment plans and things of that nature. I mean, we had a slew of questions, but individuals who are investors that didn't have a slew of questions were individuals who are actually getting paid their rental income, not from the tenants, but from these programs, from the government, from, again, these governmental programs put in place to help asylum seekers. And every month, like clockwork, those rental payments never stopped. Right, Because it's not whether or not the individual goes to work or got fired or got COVID, but you have a contractual agreement with the agency that the agency will take on the bill. The agency will pay the rent for the next six months or one year or 18 months. While, again, this refugee has other plans and systems in place to help them get employed so that they can eventually start taking over their rent. So I just find all these things fascinating, right? We've had uh, maybe one or two Section 8 investors on the show because they're not very popular, right? Most people don't want to rent their home Section 8 or to refugees or to people of this sort. And it may be because the overall verbiage has a bad rap. But on this episode, I want you to open your mind to the possibility and not only that, but the do-good mentality of helping these individuals who, again, otherwise wouldn't have that help. I don't want to steal Dave's thunder, so I'll save a lot of my thoughts and opinions on this matter for the show, but just trust, understand, and believe that in a capitalistic society, for-profit businesses can and should help the environment, can and should help the community. And again, that's what Dave is all about. So I am beyond excited to get to the show. This is a very different left-hitting show, but again, this is the kind of shows that we love to bring you guys, thought-provoking shows that 
you know, again, go against the common nomenclature of what you think your investment or your rental or your property or your deal should look like. Not to mention that you you have the chance to probably make a little bit more money. You have the chance to have maybe a little bit more stable income than if you were collecting your rent directly from the tenant. Again, not saying this is the end all be all, but yet another option, right, for you in your wheelhouse. Again, you may be struggling to find tenants, right? I, I doubt that in today's market, but this is an evergreen episode and, you know, the market might change in six months, a year, two years. And you have this resource, you know that here's a another group of people. I mean, I'm and I mean like a hundred million people. Hundred million displaced people who are looking for housing, who are looking for a new start, who just need a chance. And it's not like you're not doing the same checks you would do, you're not doing the same due diligence, the same tenant screening process that you would have. If these were regular citizens of the country, you would still want to do those things, right? You're going to have bad apples in in, in those tenants as well. So your process needs to be sound. But we also want to be open and provide opportunity to individuals who, again, otherwise wouldn't have those opportunities. So with that being said, I've also put some resources in the show notes to help you guys get started if this is, in fact, something that you want to do. It's not a, you know, one size shoe fits all cookie cutter approach. Hey, this is what you're going to have to do to start being able to house and rent your property to refugees. Right. Every city, every state, every municipal is different. So I have a resource that takes you to the Office of Refugee uh, Resettlement and that resource is going to give you key state contacts, right? Because I asked Dave on the show, like, what kind of resources can he give give us? And he really couldn't give us a whole lot because it varies so much city by city, state by state. And the best thing that you can do is just kind of roll your sleeves up, make a few calls and figure out what programs that your state is currently offering. Apply for those, right? And have some of these caseworkers bring you your tenants. Or in my situation, Because I'm trying to figure out how I can use this resource to get more tenant buyers, right? I'm looking for buyers for my property. I told Dave this on the episode, but one of my most recent sales was to a couple who, again, without the program that I offer to help individuals become homeowners, this family would not be able to own a home. This family currently owns a home that most would deem impossible for them to do. Right. No banks would allow them to own this home. Right. That every single bank would hit deny, 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 deny. The husband's wife is not yet in the country, has no papers yet. He sent all that up for her. They have a long way to go in the bank size before they can get qualified. But through my program, a program that I teach in the motivated seller method, my primary staple course. Right. I'm able to help these individuals become homeowners. Not just tenants, but I mean home ownership, which is far from the belief of most refugees. So this episode is, again, primarily focused on helping refugees become tenants and helping you make money as a landlord. But again, as I was interviewing Dave and as I re-listened to the episode, I just thought about all the possibilities in what I do and maybe even in what you do if it's outside this realm as well and how we can help. DeRay's Tip of the Week. Hey guys, a lot of us are starting 
our online businesses. A lot of us are starting our real estate businesses and we are becoming entrepreneurs and this transition is not a smooth one. So if you're having a hectic transition, if you're just living a hectic lifestyle in general, um, and you're a real estate professional, you're a real estate entrepreneur, or you're an aspiring entrepreneur, and you're trying to find the hours to completely leave your day job, or you're trying to find the time, or you're trying to focus, make sure that you're focused on the right things. Because again, there are a million things that we can all do in our businesses, but not everything that we can do in our business is super important, and not everything that we do in our business is going to push the needle for us, especially with our most important goals for the quarter and our most important goals for the year. So for this tip of the week, my advice is to start goal planning by the day, literally writing down your goals every day, going over your goals every week, and making sure that the tasks that you're pursuing are the number one tasks that are going to allow you to achieve your goals, whether it's a 90-day goal, a 60-day goal, one-year goal, a monthly goal, a weekly goal. You need to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward when you're performing tasks in such a limited time frame. Again, most of us were working with 10 hours after work, right? 10 hours a week after work, max. So with that time, you need to be as efficient as possible with the tasks that you're doing and making sure that those tasks line up with your 90-day goals. So one thing that I implement, if you guys head over to beforethemans.com forward slash 90x, that's 90x, uh, you're going to find a goal planner that I use personally in my life. And this goal planner helps me just take all the clutter out of everything, really understand what are those one or two pivotal things that I need to do in my business today to make sure that I keep business moving forward, right? What are the two things that I need to accomplish today to make sure that I am actually doing things worthwhile in my business? Now, again, I can work on a ton of things in my business every single day. Like the, the list never ends, but in order for me to get to my 90 day goal, there are certain things that need to be done. And the more I track that progress, the better odds I have of getting to that goal. And what I use as a planner, I love to journal. I love to write something visceral. It's better than anything else I've ever experienced as far as goal setting in the mornings. So uh, the journal that I use, again, is called a 90X planner. You can find that over at beforethemillions.com forward slash 90X. And at checkout, if you enter coupon code VMillions15, that's T-H-E-M-I-L-L-I-O-N-S 15, the number 1515, uh, you will get 15% off of the journal that I have. And these journals are amazing. You guys know how much I love journals. It's a leather-bound journal. It's It, it has so many different features. They just, they just came out with a new one, the 2.0 Goal Planner. And it has a section for you to brand up. Uh, it's also It also replaces your habit tracking app, which those apps are never really effective for me, but this actually gets it done for me. Um, there's a section for daily wins and your notes. There's a section for less important tasks that don't have a, that don't directly correlate with your 90-day goal. There's a weekly productivity tracker. There's amazing quotes from a ton of different philosophers. There's actually a water tracker that makes sure that you're drinking the right amount of water every single day. You can use this for home or office use. You could break down your daily goals. You could focus on long-term goal setting. You even have a section to where you could focus on your top five goals over the next 90 days and make sure that you're implementing something for those specific goals every single day. Now, what's really cool about this planner is you only fill out two pages a day. Now, I've had some to where it literally takes me a whole day to get through the planner. I have to fill it out in the morning and at night, and it's very frustrating. This is a very simple concept. There's not a whole lot to write, and it gets you to your goal as quickly as possible. So again, if you guys want 
to take advantage of such a system. You guys want to start writing down your goals. You want to, guys want to get clarity around what it is that you need to focus on in your business. Head over to beforethemains.com forward slash 90X and get your hands on this new goal planner. Again, we are halfway through the year, and I think that in order to make the second half just as good as the first half, if not better, um, you need to go ahead and start writing down your goals every single day and revisiting your goals in such a way that's visceral for you. Now, one thing I will say is that if you fell short of your goals the first quarter, that is perfectly fine. That happens to all of us. It happened to me a ton, and I'm sure I'll have an episode, a whole episode on it. But also the second quarter, if you fell short of your goal, nine times out of ten, if you fell short of your goal two quarters in a row, it's because you're not doing the proper tracking. And I'm super big on systems, guys. What gets measured gets managed. There's no way that you can lose weight and keep weight off if you're not measuring and managing the exercise that you're doing and if you're not measuring and managing the intake that you're having of food and calories, guys. It's super important, guys. That's where people mess up is they they implement things, and but then they don't measure and manage the results. This planner is going to help you do that. So head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash 90X and enter code the millions 15 at checkout for 15% off. Also guys, with that coupon code comes a ton of different stickers, which I don't think that this company offers without that coupon code. So you get a ton of different stickers and you'll get a brand new 90X goal planner pen that says trust the process. That's only with that coupon code. So again, that's before the millions.com forward slash 90X coupon code, the millions 15. Now let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. I think the thing that most motivated me to change my life and to change the way I was investing was when uh, we got pregnant uh, with our first child. My wife was pregnant and I was working at a nonprofit, you know, organization at a college and I was making enough money to get by and pay bills, but it was never going to be enough to really live abundantly, you know, and take the kind of vacations we might want or just have the buffer that we would want in life. And that motivation of having to provide for another person (laughs) allowed me to get very serious very quickly. And it led me to dive into learning about real estate because I'd always had it in the back of my mind, I was interested in it. I'd been a passive investor in a syndication project. So I knew a little bit about it, but it always considered it a little dirty, you know, kind of car salesy. And what allowed me to really focus on it was the idea that I can make my own house as green and energy efficient as I like, and that's not going to change the world at all, really. But if I can do that to a hundred different houses or a thousand, you know, over the course of time, and I can teach other entrepreneurs how to do that to tens of thousands, hey, then that's more than just a drop or two in the bucket. That's, you know, a couple cups. I mean, we're starting to move the needle. And that led me kind of down the rabbit hole of real estate, you know, books, podcasts, meetups and everything else until I started buying, you know, first single family home. And that took me to where I am today with, you know, almost 200 units. I love it. I love it. I love it. Let's peel the onion back and let's dive into that story a little bit more, Dave. I mean, earlier on, I mean, again, you said that you were having your first child and you were trying to figure out how to be more, do more, have more, because I mean, you, you guys were essentially turning into a family. So you thought about the fact that you needed to to do more, to be more, and you stumbled upon it. Was real estate your first choice? Yeah, it, it was because I had an MBA at that time. I was overqualified for, you know, my nonprofit development, you know, fundraising job. And I had been for some period of time. And I liked that. And I was fine with that. And I chose that path. 
I deliberately didn't earn a high wage with a degree that I could have used to earn a high wage. And so I had kind of been monastic <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't want to, you know, sell out, quote unquote, you know, by going uh, to get the first job that, you know, would get me an MBA salary at a bank insurance company, whatever it might be that I wasn't passionate about, you know, because I'm passionate about the environment, about people, about Latin America. That's where my wife is from. That We lived there for many years in Bolivia. And I just thought, you know, the built environment, the architectural environment that we're in, that's 40% of global carbon emissions between the construction and operation. It is the biggest factor in screwing over the environment and the planet right now. And if we can move that needle, if we can really start fixing the built environment, you know, both commercial, residential, everything in between, and I can play any tiny bit role in that opera, that would be, you know, fulfilling. That would be something special. I love it. Uh, absolutely. Take me back to your first experience in Latin America. I mean, did you move there because of your wife? Were you already living there and you met your wife? How did that come about? Yeah, good question. My first meaningful experience there, I mean, we had, I had taken like a vacation with family when I was younger to like Mexico or something. But in uh, college, my first year of college, I spent a week in El Salvador uh, learning about sweatshops, maquiladoras, and visiting some of them and going inside and meeting workers, meeting management, kind of learning that it's a complex issue. It's not as black and white, you know, as people might paint it. And you know, those jobs are important to the people that have them. And, you know, you, you can't just make everything with robots or, or pay everyone $100 an hour. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a very human complex issue and it intrigued me. So I ended up becoming a Latin American studies major eventually in college. I did two different study abroad experiences, you know, uh, one in Central America and Guatemala. And then the next one was down in Bolivia. And, and both of those were because they're majority indigenous countries, which really interested me. And I was interested in, in sort of how economics and culture intersect, you know, and that was really fascinating to me. So I, I went down to Bolivia my senior year of college. Nothing was further from my mind than starting a long-term relationship and finding my, my life partner, believe you me. I was, you know, footloose, fancy free college senior, ready to party and, and just study and learn. So, you know, we met randomly down there through a mutual friend and I tried to date Romy and, and she was smart enough to know that I was a sketchy gringo and not really looking for long-term things. And, you know, sometimes when you get off on that footing and we just were kind of friends and then eventually on, on her own terms, she kind of let my foot in the door, gave me a chance for us to start dating. And, and we stayed together when I went back to finish my senior year. And I knew in my heart that I had to go back down to Bolivia and see where this relationship was going because it was on the up and up at that time. And I don't want to wind up, you know, 40 and divorced and sad kind of thinking like, oh, what if I had just pursued you know, this person that I had a really special connection with, and then it got artificially broken up. So after college, I went back with kind of no return ticket, you know, and just stayed down there for the next couple of years. We found, you know, a way to start a business together, a little chain of camping stores, bookstores called the Spitting Llama uh, that we started there. And that was kind of the entrepreneur in me blossoming. I'd only taken one business or econ class my entire high school and college career up to that point. So certainly didn't have a background in it, but I think it's intuitive for some people and it was for me and, and it was fun. It was challenging. I mean, nothing's more challenging than trying to start a legitimate business in a developing country where you don't, you don't speak the language natively. You don't look like the people there and you don't have a lot of money. And it's, it's a very, you know, uh, high and low kind of experience, but a lot of fun and learned a lot, you know, in my years there. 
Absolutely. So you started and run this bookstore and are you still kind of thinking in the back of your mind or maybe even participating in some some sense or fashion at what was pulling at your heart to begin with when you saw what was going on in the sweatshops and things of that nature? Is there any work in, in you know, in the back of the scenes where you're kind of still working on that those those things at the time when you start and run the bookstore? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll be upfront that I'm a unabashed like do-gooder in my <laughs> general attitude. So like, yes, we were trying to basically promote sustainable tourism in the country. And one of the big eye-opening experiences for me is that our stores, just from a marketing standpoint, were geared towards tourists, you know, backpackers who were coming through from Europe, Israel, North America, Asia, everywhere in between. And what we quickly found is that local people were our customers. And by the time I was leaving there, like something like 75% of our sales were going to local people because Bolivia's economy was doing better. More people were entering the middle class. They wanted to go camping. They wanted to do the things they saw the foreigners doing in their own country. And so that was really gratifying to actually become a local business for local people who also served an international crowd. But, you know, and we had employees there that, you know, we tried to treat very well. We tried to pay them very well and, you know, make it a good job for them because there are many, you know, very abusive employment situations you find in very unregulated parts of any economy, including our own in the U.S. So, you know, we, we had a great time doing that. We passed it on to our father-in-law who ran them, you know, for years after we left. And he, you know, we encouraged him to kind of slowly downsize because, you know, he was, they were strung out all over the country. He was busing back and forth and flying all over. And, you know, for someone who's supposed to be retired, we didn't want him you know, <laughs> trying to operate a, a multinational company, essentially. He really enjoys it though and, and takes to it. And he still runs... Uh, the business in our home city. So there's still awesome. the spinning llama in Cochabamba. I like it. I like it a lot. When you think about the, again, the people that you're helping, when did it, when was it laid on your heart to, to really look at these, you know, the new immigrants in the U.S. and, you know, asylum seekers and really start helping them towards maybe home ownership or helping them towards maybe a comfortable living situation, right? When did, when was that kind of placed on your heart? I don't know the exact moment, but I think my, my whole life led me to have a lot of sympathy for newcomers and, and to root for the underdog, which I think is actually a very American thing to do. Like Europe, you're kind of rooting for the nobility, you know, the aristocracy. And in the U.S., we're supposed to root for the underdog. We don't always live up to that. But, you know, I had lived on, on Native American reservations in the U.S. I'd spent a lot of time, you know, seeing the oppression of indigenous populations in our country, you know, of people of color, recognizing, you know, my kind of privilege as a white man, you know, all these things that, you know, I'm part of the problem and I can be part of the solution, basically. And so I think, you know, for me, it's very gratifying to be able to, you know, run my business as a for-profit entity. I'm not doing charity work anymore. But in some ways, I feel like I'm doing as much or more good for profit. And I think that's a lesson I learned as a, as a do-gooder is that we're, we're maybe taught to think that only nonprofits can do good things and that corporations are all bad or whatever. And that's a very black and white way of seeing the world. And it's not correct, right. <laughs> in my opinion. There's marvelous companies that do great things. And there's terrible nonprofits that suck money and energy and life out of the world. So, you know, there's different sorts of nations out there. But to me, the, you know, it goes back to biblical times. I mean, I'm not particularly religious, but if, if your audience is Christian or Muslim or any religion out there, you know, the books are very clear that you're supposed to, you know, 
open your door to refugees and you're supposed to treat them with dignity and respect and help people who have nothing. And a refugee is the quintessential person who has nothing. I mean, they have a suitcase or a backpack and, and that's usually it. And so you can move the needle in their life so profoundly by just being willing to rent to them. You know, that, I mean, that alone is something that probably 95% of landlords would just say like, what, no credit score, you're out of here. Hit the road, Jack, you know? And it's, you know, that's not gonna tell you know, you a lot about the tenants. I've had horrible tenants with great credit scores. <laughs> yeah. So, right. you know, it's uh, not an easy equation. Absolutely. And again, I wanted to touch on this topic because I, you know, I do something very similar. I, uh, I often sell to what I like to call a tenant buyer. I owner finance deals to tenant buyer, or I owner finance deals to, to buyers. But ultimately, sometimes if we do a lease option, we'd be a tenant buyer. But ultimately, a lot of the individuals that I owner finance to are people who are from third world countries or people who, you know, otherwise wouldn't be able to qualify for along with the bank, right? So it's oftentimes trying to make sure that they still have access to the same things that, you know, the average citizen would have. So, um, you know, this this couple that we just owned our finance to uh, not too long ago, right? They're, they're, I mean, this guy's wife is not even here yet. Like they're, you know, they're brand new and there's no way that they can, they can get anything right now, right? So it's amazing how we've helped them become homeowners and they, they're brand new immigrants to this country. So yeah, I absolutely love that. That's the thing that you're doing, even again in the rent space as tenants, right? Because I mean, even that process is hard. So is there anything specific that you're doing to make sure that, you know, you talk about the fact that not only immigrants, but also asylum seekers. So is there anything specific? And we can talk about what asylum seekers yeah. are, but is there anything specific or like a, a database or is there like a way that you're actually seeking these individuals? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, I mean, just the other day we called up, you know, the main immigrant and refugee association because there was an article in the newspaper about how they were taking, you know, a hundred different families from Afghanistan, you know, that had fled Afghanistan. They're on these military bases and they need housing. And, you know, we had a vacancy coming up and, you know, we just kind of proactively reach out. And, you know, so we work, we're not just finding these people walking on the street, right? <laughs> you know, we're working with organizations, um, you know, that we've worked with like the Portland city government, you know, that runs the different homeless shelters and they have great kind of social worker type people that'll say, oh yeah, this family is kind of on track for getting green cards as, you know, refugees or asylum seekers or just green card lottery folks, um, you know, so they'll be able to get work permits. They're here legally, you know, and, and that's a lot easier to work with an organization like that that can kind of help you place the right family, you know, in your unit. And they've done some background and diligence work where they'll provide translation help. You know, there's an 800 number you can call to, you know, get the Portuguese, you know, translator on speakerphone while you're talking with your new tenant or, or new, you know, rent to own, you know, participant. So working with those kind of organizations has been great. And just getting people on our staff who like doing that and, and have some experience and background doing that, which basically means they're not property managers right. <laughs> by training necessarily. Right. We've never hired a property manager in our property management company, A, because it's skills you can pick up and B, because the other soft skills to me are much more important than like, do you know how to you know, do the workflow in the database for the you know, property management software? So 
that's been the way we've done it. One of the big challenges though, is that a lot of our, you know, units are, are vacant unit or they're unfurnished, you know, so we'll have to get kind of get donation drives. We've done that a couple different times and it's a little hodgepodge of getting, you know, a bed uh, mismatching chair and a table. And, you know, we don't always, you know, get exactly what we need through donations, but usually these social servants agencies can fill in the rest or they can provide the majority and we can fill in the gaps and that kind of thing. And then, you know, the ideal situation is when, you know, the tenant kind of graduates from being a tenant, they might move out after a few years and become a homeowner or go to a bigger place or whatever. And, you know, then you, you redonate things that you can and, and so forth. Yeah. I like it. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that again, you, you love helping individuals and families, but you are a for-profit business. So when it comes to being a for-profit business, how does your business model change to accommodate these things? Um, are you, you know, there are certain losses that you know yeah. you're accounting for, uh, even from the vetting process, right? What are you, what are you looking at to make sure that you're putting in the proper tenants and tenants that can actually afford the place that, that you're renting out to them? Yeah, that's a great question. Most of our units I would describe as B-class units, you know, in towns that are big enough to have, you know, food pantries and some social services of that sort. And, and critically, the rent for these folks is generally paid by some kind of program for the first months or even years of their time. So I'm not just taking a loss on the rent permanently or something like that. I think that. that's important. Yeah. What often happens is the local general assistance fund or the refugee funds or, or you know whatever they have will phase out over a period of time. Or when they start earning income, that subsidy drops way off way quickly. So, and that's great. Like, that's wonderful. We love to see when our refugee asylum seeker tenants are no longer getting their subsidies because they're working two jobs and they're earning their own way. I mean, that that has been a really cool thing to see happen in, in quite a few cases. You know, others are kind of, the bureaucracy is just stultifying. They're waiting for literally years for this dumb little piece of paper that says you can work legally and pay taxes. And I, I think it's, it's immigration system in this country is beyond broken to the point where you get suspicious of like, wait, do they want it like this intentionally? <laughs> right, right. Just make it Absolutely. a hassle on purpose. <laughs> yeah. No one would design it this way. You know, right. like, this is hyperly inefficient. Yeah, I get that. When you think about the these programs, right? Again, talking to individuals, including myself, who who have never even explored the possibility of this, you're foray into this. Again, you're maybe calling one of these funds, I imagine, and um, you're you know letting them know about your business and your company, and you're asking them if they have any of these whether it's a down payment assistance or whether it's, you know, rent assistance and how, how do you go about the process? Especially again, I, yeah. I have a, I have an open unit tomorrow and I want to, I yeah. want to make sure that I'm helping and I have a, you know, I want to make sure that I'm getting, you know, immigrant tenants. What do I do? Yeah. Great question. And my best answer is call around, <laughs> you know, and I've, most of what we've done has been with city governments where they run, you know, homeless shelters and they run, you know, they're helping refugees there because it kind of falls on them. And there's, there's, that's the safety net that exists is the homeless shelters in cities a lot of times. And so, but they have social workers who work for the city and they help place people from their shelters into rental apartments. And so, you know, especially if you're near Houston or something like that, I mean, they probably have whole divisions of people that are working on this sort of thing and they're the experts and, and they can kind of tell you, Hey, DeRay, here's how you can get paid, you know, by the city or the section eight program or this refugee assistance program as a landlord. 
And they'll have formulas of saying, okay, a two bedroom apartment in your town for a family of four, uh, you're going to get, you know, $1,751 a month in rent, take it or leave it. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. Right. And usually what I've found is that the rent price they're willing to pay is actually a little bit more than I might've charged, you know, at a market rate. The only difference for me is that I'm uh, usually forced to pay for the utilities for these kind of tenants. Whereas normally I would want tenants paying their own heat and electric, you know, cause that just promotes thriftiness on both sides of the equation. It takes some logistical, you know, work off of my plate where now, okay, we're taking a family from Angola. They're not exactly going to know how to register with the local utility company and they don't have a bank account to pay that right. bill with, you know, so right. we might get 200 bucks extra in rent per month, but we're paying that $190 bill or, you know, whatever it may be. So it's kind of a wash, but, but you're getting a, decent price, you know, maybe sometimes lower than market, maybe sometimes higher, but um, it's meant to be market. So I think it works great for people that have units that are not like new built class A kind of nice new unit. So then you're probably going to be at a higher rate than what your, your local programs are going to want to pay. But if you have units that are 10 years old or more, you know, and, and somewhat dated or what have you, but are then in good, clean shape and they come and check it out. They're not going to put someone in a place with no smoke alarms and rats. And, you know, this is not, you know, <laughs> uh, slumlord kind of stuff here. We need good, safe, clean units, um, you know, for residents to live in. Absolutely. You know, initially, I, I think I was trying to separate, you know, governmental housing and section eight from what I thought you were participating in, but it's kind of in the same thing. Like a lot of these GA funds, like they are, they are governmental programs, correct? Oh yeah. There's a whole alphabet soup of different kind of rent voucher type programs out there. And, you know, some are kind of run through religious charities. Some are, are section eight, some, there, there's veterans ones, there's refugee, there's all kinds of different possibilities. And, and I think Landlords should be open to those. You know, there's yeah. a lot of prejudice out there. Just, oh, Section 8, like you're dirty, unwashed, get out of here. Um, and it is true that you might have a higher percentage of kind of behavioral issues among that tenant population. And you might want to screen a lot more carefully, you know, when you're taking them to make sure that you're not going to make the other neighbor's lives miserable when you're, you know, setting this up with the best of intentions that you might have. But I don't think it's a one size fits all. You know, we've had tenants who have high incomes and high credit scores who are total nightmares and, and vice versa. So it just depends. I've seen some governmental and some Section 8 housing in some really nice neighborhoods. So I don't, can you share, shed some light on that? Because I don't think that it's yeah. a, it's just for like the, you know, class C type neighborhoods. I think you, I totally. think it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And I'm not an expert in this realm, uh, you know, but uh, as a practitioner, <laughs> you know, they will have formulas where they're calculating you know, the market rent for your town or city. And they do it on a pretty granular level, you know, by census tract or, you know, so forth. And they're not far off, um, even in this spiraling cost kind of environment. And, it, you know, that's what they're willing to pay. And sometimes it feels like, oh, great. Like I wasn't even going to charge that much. This is great. And it does help, you know, offset some of the extra effort you might go to as a landlord. You might be spending an hour or two extra teaching this family, you know, not to, you know, wash dishes in the bathtub or, you know, whatever it may be, you know, they're just elements of living in U.S. housing that is different from European housing. It's different right. from Middle Eastern, African or what have you, you know, so it's, it's not just a simple, easy, okay, they're placed and I can just collect my check every month kind of thing. I, I think, you know, that's 
part of the the reward of it is you you work with these families a little bit more, you know, but you get to see their lives explode and blossom in these really great ways that your average tenant here who's, you know, seventh generation in this country or whatever, like, and that's most of our tenants, like, you know, and it's great giving them housing and treating them with dignity and respect. And, and it's a two-way street and that's gratifying too. But the, the amount of needle moving you can do, you know, for an asylum seeking family that's come from a situation of, of genocide or, or famine or, or these kind of situations, it's, it's really great. You know, I think as a landlord, do you, do, do you do talk, that. I mean, have you, have you, I'm sure you have like, just thinking about a conversation that you've had with one of your tenants and they were in just some crazy situation overseas and now they're here and their life is completely changed and you provided housing for them. I'm sure that touches you every single time, but whenever you hear a story like that, like what, what's one of those stories that you heard and what's your reaction? Cause I'm, I can just imagine, you know, some of these asylum seeking individuals are just like, I'm so happy that I've gotten, you know, gotten to the US and like my life has completely changed. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a few stories. And you know, I I'm sensitive to not wanting to kind of open old wounds per se, you know, so I don't say like, you know, tell me about the genocide, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But you know, I know that in a lot of cases, um, even the middle or upper classes of a given country are scared and having a tough time, you know, where they are. And and I will say that renting to asylum seekers and refugees, it, they are very appreciative of what you're giving them. They do not have an entitled mentality for the mm. most part. You know, they are thankful and trying to learn the new rules and follow them. And, and a lot of times they're pretty highly educated people that have made it this far. You know, a lot of the folks that I'm taking, like one's a, you know, he was a biochemist, you know, and you just, you don't know the backgrounds of the folks you're working with, but you know, it, it is kind of beautiful to see, to learn about their different cultures and, and teach them something about our culture and, you know, give them a little walking tour of the town and some of the resources, you know, they might need. And now it's, I'm not doing it as much personally as working with our property managers, you know, who are doing that, but it still is very gratifying, you know, even a step back, being able to know and see that like, we're giving people chances in housing that other landlords, they just, they're not going to do it. Cause like, why, especially in this housing market where you can have a posting and have 50 inquiries as fast as you want, you know, why are they going to take a risk in their mind or do something new and different outside the box? And to me, it's, it's really because a it's the same economically, but just kind of morally, ethically, you know, feel good at the end of the day, it's just way more gratifying. Like it makes the job fun. You know, any job, if you're just doing it for money is going to like kill your soul over time. I mean, that's just a fact, you know, but if you're doing it for more than money, if you really love doing the accounting to help people figure out those accounting problems, you know, if you love doing real estate to help people solve their housing problems, you know, that I think is what gives you the kind of fuel in the belly, you know, the fire in the belly to, you know, carry on and, and to grow. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, that's, that's a great distinction for sure. And another one that I want to maybe touch on is, you know, sure. COVID started, you know, last year, or actually, you know, yeah. even the year before kind of, kind of sort of, but it became prevalent last year. During the, you know, all, all the drama with real estate, you know, you had the, the mandatory, um, what was it, the moratoriums and all that, all that stuff. What, yeah. what was, what was the situation like with your rentals from the fund aspect and the governmental aspect? Like, what was the situation like with your rentals? Did you stop getting paid? And, and yeah. how did you go about making sure that you were staying afloat? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I think for all, I think I speak for all landlords when I say, you know, March of 2020, we were scared. <laughs> we, we did not know what was going to happen, but it didn't look good. And it looked like there was going to be a lot of non-payment. And so basically, you know, with my syndications, I basically said to all of them, like, we're, we're just going to pause, hit the big pause button on distributions. We're going to stock up on cash because we're expecting hemorrhaging. You know, we're expecting real problems. And we were kind of waiting for that tidal wave to hit and I'm still waiting. And in fact, what has happened as we all can kind of attest now is that the housing market is in some ways stronger and better than ever, at least as ostensibly, uh, there's more demand for this housing. And so in reality, our residential tenants, I don't think we had a single one need more than like a month or two deferral and we got them on kind of payment plans and got them caught up. One of the great things that happened for tenants has been rent relief. And there's huge, huge amounts of funds that were given out to the states to distribute to tenants. And in Maine, we have like, it's, like, it's at least like $100 million that they can't find tenants to distribute it to because everyone's up to date in the rent or isn't able or qualified or whatever to apply. You know, so the only tenants that have gotten behind on rent, it ain't because of COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for um, sure. You know, it's it's been the usual kind of tenant problems, but, you know, we take this kind of measure twice, cut once mentality on tenant placement of we're going to screen really hard and, and carefully and, you know, do a phone call and do a meeting and really make sure that this is going to be a person that is going to be honorable and fit, you know, with this unit and be able to pay and so forth that we really just didn't have on the commercial side or the residential side, any major problems. I think we had, you know, two or three out of 150 need deferrals and uh, one a massage therapist left because of COVID, you know, which is understandable. But other than that, it was actually rents were suddenly going up and demand was suddenly higher. And, you know, people are leaving the downtown urban centers and coming to places like Maine, where they have good schools and fresh air and uh, space, you know, to kind of spread out and not be cooped up, you know, inside all day. Yeah, I love it. That's, that's beautiful. I'm glad that you were able to, to sustain and, and grow from that. So to wrap up that, because I think you drew on another point, I want to kind of go down that thought wave as well. But to wrap up on that, so from the actual tenants who were still using government assistance, the government actually never stopped paying for all of those contracts. So that, I, I was just trying to draw out another yeah, benefit. Yeah, yeah. I think from, if you were a landlord that had a lot of Section 8 or, or that kind of government voucher housing, you loved it in the beginning of COVID because you knew you were going to get paid. I mean, they can just hit control P, print the dollars and give them to you as they did. And that was a reassurance. I mean, the vast majority of our tenants are market rate tenants, not on vouchers. And, and we were shaking in our boots in the beginning. You know, I was thinking this is going to be 20 or 30% economic vacancy. And, and luckily it was, you know, two or 3%. It wasn't bad at all. So we, we dodged a bullet. And I think that's true on the national stage too, largely the aid and stimulus that was created seems to have largely worked. Yeah. So you've touched on the point that I have to kind of tag along to this next uh, quite a few more times in that response as well. The fact that the government has been able to just literally hit control P <laughs> like yeah. whenever they want over and over again from a macroeconomical standpoint. Yeah. How do you, how, how are you viewing all of this? Let me climb up on my soapbox because I love studying macroeconomics, you know, as an amateur in podcasts and in books and stuff. And, you know, I think we have to take a historical view of, you know, since Roman times, governments have inflated the currency. You know, the Romans did it by diluting the 
amount of silver in the denarius and you know and and some would say that that led to their fall i would say it was political issues and the monetary you know was just a symptom of that um and i think that's true here too is that um you know, every year the U.S. has been devaluing the dollar, and that's the stated goal of our central bank, the Federal Reserve. Uh, they wanted they want to devalue your savings by two percent a year. That that that's their plan, and because they think that both stimulates the economy, promotes low unemployment, and most importantly, and this is the subtext, uh, allows the government to create more debt um, and devalue the debt that they have and make payments on it. You know, at a low interest rate. So. That, you know, is a house of cards that governments mm. all across the mm. world create. I don't think there's any special particular malice in our government versus any other. I think it's just that's how fiat currency works when it's not pegged to something like gold or Bitcoin. And you've seen Bitcoin appreciating against the dollar and real estate appreciating against the dollar. Gold, uh, because there's so much paper gold and it's a manipulated market, you know, that's not appreciating much. And central banks are quietly scooping a lot of it up, you know, because I guess they think it'll still be worth something in the future. Or they'll make it so. But in general, as an investor, if you know inflation is going to happen and you know it's going to be at a significant rate, you'd want to fix in low interest rate debt over long periods of time and, you know, use that arbitrage. If I can make 10 or 20% a year in real estate by leveraging at, you know, 60 to 80% at three or 4% interest, that arbitrage, it's a beautiful thing. You know, you're kind of becoming your own bank in a sense. And I think that's a prudent thing to do. You know, the, the worst thing to do is just keep your money in a checking account or savings account and think that that is going to retain its purchasing power. It's rapidly depreciating. And I think that'll slow down. We can't go at this level for too long before we start getting, uh, you know, a little bit of dizzy. You know, we don't want to turn into a, you know, Venezuela kind of situation or, or, you know, people cite, you know, Weimar Germany as another hyperinflation scenario. And I, I think we're well capable of avoiding those worst case outcomes in part because, and I, I forget the, the book and the author that made this case, so it'll come to me right after our interview, but technology is incredibly deflationary. Globalization is incredibly deflationary. Those forces are deflationary. You know, the declining global population that we're about to start seeing in our lifetimes, I mean, that's going to be really deflationary. And so you have all these macro forces on the deflation side. The only force on the inflation side is the control P government printing, really, uh, and, and temporary supply bottlenecks. But those, in my opinion, are not what's causing the majority of the inflation right now. It's, I mean, if you look at the amount of real estate appreciation I think it's almost perfectly correlated to the expansion of money supply, you know, on the federal level. Uh, and I don't think that's a coincidence. So, you know, I think we just, we roll with it. We hope that it goes down and, and gets tamped down. That might mean some higher interest rates than what we're seeing now. So, you know, I'm about to lock in a 10-year fix on a property and I've been doing five-year fixes for the past couple of years because I saw rates probably just continuing down to going negative eventually like Europe and Asia. And now I think maybe we'll at least stay the same, if not go up a little bit. So I'm going to lock in, you know, a 10 year now, and maybe I'll kick myself for doing that. Like I did when I started doing them back in, you know, the 2016 era, but you know, we'll see that that's the fun part about real estate is you get to look into your crystal ball cloudy or not, and try to predict what's going to happen. But the nice thing is it's tangible. It's not options and futures and stocks and paper assets. It's right there in front of your face you can go and physically improve your investment if you want to. You can go paint it, landscape it, do whatever you know you want to do to help it be successful. 
Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. What is your favorite Before the Millions book? The one I'm going to recommend to folks is Let My People Go Surfing by Avon Chenard. He's the founder of Patagonia. You get bonus points if you knew that. And it's a business book, you know, it's a lifestyle book disguised as a business book, you know, and he comes from a very untraditional business background. He was a, you know, dirtbag, rock climbing hippie, you know, who ended up founding this, you know, multi-billion dollar company now. And I think it's got a lot of good lessons in it. And another one, I'll, I'll do a twofer, is Investment Biker, blanking out in the author's name, a famous investor. It'll, again, I'll put in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. But wonderful story, Bill Rogers, Bill Rogers is his name, about you know, motorcycling across Eurasia you know, in the 80s when this was not done during the collapse or pre-collapse of the Soviet Union. And a lot of good business lessons, life lessons in that book as well. And those are both off the sort of rich dad, poor dad, usual track of things. I like it. I like it, man. Some new, fresh recommendations. <laughs> well, most of our recommendations are a lot of the popular business books, uh, like you said, rich dad, poor dad, but some new, fresh ones, I have to definitely add those, both of those to my book list for sure. And a quick PS, Bill Rogers is a famous runner. I think it's Jim Rogers is the uh, business author. And <laughs> there we go. Yeah. There He's we a go. partner okay. of Soros. He was Soros's business partner who then split up from him and, you know, did this walkabout for a year and a half. I like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading both of those books for sure. Thanks for those recommendations. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. I don't think I do a lot of lifestyle design intentionally with apps point to that I've found great utility in. It's called Genius Scan, which just lets you take any document and scan it in as a PDF, upload it to Google Drive, email it, you know, and that alone saves me so much time, you know, from using a traditional scanner or just taking photos with my phone, which don't look that great. This, you know, auto whitens everything, corrects everything. And yeah, you'll get some peace, some organization, you know, the, the accountants and organization nerds listening, you know, if you don't have a good scanning app, uh, oh, yeah. that's a great one. Oh yeah, I like it, I like it. It's called Genius Scan and that'll be in the show notes as well. I actually just use the, there's a notes function that a lot of people don't know about. I showed my mom the other day. She was like, oh, I didn't know you can do this. But yeah, you can actually use the, the uh, notes function inside exactly. of your actual oh, notes app oh. if you have an iPhone and actually scan instead of just take a picture. So definitely check that out guys, if you guys have an iPhone. Okay. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? Kids, it gives me time with my kids. That's easy. You know, it's, uh, I get to be a present dad if I choose to be, which I admit I'm not always good at, you know, these phones are like, you know, drug addictions, but it, it allows me the time to pick them up from school to, I mean, if, if we were doing activities during COVID, we, we would be doing those together um you know but it just allows me to be very present in their lives without needing to sell my time my life my time with my kids to a company not of my own choosing so that that's huge Absolutely. To what were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today hard work that's it that's the only thing you really have to do i think um is hard work you know i mean yeah monetarily you know you, you gotta be frugal in the beginning so that you can live large at the end and you know those kind of things that are just kind of budgeting pieces but i think really the biggest definition in life between success and failure between fame and fortune and, and kind of mediocrity is hard work and and almost never do you see people who are super hard workers and diligent just kind of overall like failing and doing what they 
you know, choose to do. Now, a lot of hard workers choose to do jobs that are never going to make them wealthy. And that's, that's its own thing. <laughs> but I think in terms of, of my, you know, sort of ability to get where I am, I, I think, you know, part of it is hard work. And then part of it, I, I would attribute to just honesty of I'm working with investors, you know, I'm stewarding their money, I'm taking, you know, friend, family, third party funds and putting them into real estate, you know, syndications and investments. And to do that successfully, I mean, you have to be on the straight and narrow and you have to be someone that inspires that kind of confidence uh, and trust and, and treat the investor money as more important than your own, you know, so that to me has been a key to success as well. It's just trying to be um, honest with investors and never kind of gloss over pain <laughs> and failure. Uh, don't, don't sweep anything under the rug, you know, don't surprise them, over communicate. Those have been things that have helped me get where I am today. I like it. I like it. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? My parents, of course, you know, I'll give them a shout out uh, as essential. You know, my friend uh, from college, Jason, who got me started in the first passive investment in real estate, we're now developing, you know, a new construction project together, 57 units that are really sustainable and awesome in here in Maine. So uh, he's another person that, you know, has been critical on this journey and it, uh, there's too many to mention. I mean, people like you, you know, doing great podcasts. I, I deep down the podcast rabbit hole early on because mm -hmm. it's it's amazing. You know, like we're getting access to you for, for free and all your guests for free The you know, 30 years ago, this would only be on like the lecture circuit or, you know, that kind of thing. You'd really have to pay for it. So, you know, thank you for what you're doing of just, you know, spreading knowledge and wisdom and, and, and trying to help people. You know, it's a great, uh, great program. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. We appreciate you for sure. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? Well, I know exactly why. It's because society teaches you to be stuck. You know, I, I think that like I grew up not knowing really much about entrepreneurism or real estate or, or the kind of secrets of the wealthy or those kind of things. And it's not taught, you know, in high school or college. It's just something that you have to kind of learn on your own. And so this careerism track that happens, you know, in the US, but I mean, that's true, I think, in many other countries as well. It serves corporations very well, but it doesn't serve the workers and the people in them quite so well. And I think it's hard to break out of that. There are a lot of golden handcuffs in the society that say, hey, if you want health insurance, you've got to have a W-2 job, you know? And, and that's a huge disincentive to entrepreneurs to go out and just kind of create things without a safety net. You know, we're all drawn towards these cozy, comfortable safety nets and, and, and the golden handcuffs of a W-2 job are very real and very strong. And, you know, it's, it's hard to take the risk jumping outside them, most importantly because of education. Until you start listening to shows like this and learning and hearing from other people who are like, oh, they all kind of escaped, they went a different way, like this is really possible and doable. If you're just around your coworkers who are all in the same program you are, you know, why would you see anything different? Why would you choose a different path? It just seems scary and, and irresponsible. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think it's good to start with a side hustle, you know, and, and start small and then it's something you love and it's, it's having some success you know you can you can make the jump i love it i love it absolutely dave like i said this has been a fantastic podcast episode we've learned so much about you so much about your journey how you've helped so many international people live here in the u.s 
Uh, if the listeners want to learn a little bit more about you, I know we had so much more to cover. We didn't even talk about the, the syndications and the funds and what you really got going on. But I think that we dove deep into a really cool, specific topic that we haven't yet covered on the show. I know a lot of listeners got some value from that. So if they want to learn a little bit more about you, if they want to reach out to you, maybe say hi or find out what you got going on, where can they find some of your information? Yeah, well, I'll give your audience my personal cell phone, 207-517-5700. But don't worry, I, I only get one or two calls at most. So people are, are shy, you know, and that's okay. I get it. If I can't answer, leave a message and I'll get back to you. My website is holmanhomes.com. If you want to poke around there, you know, our property management site is katahdinmanagement.com. Katahdin being the northernmost terminus of the Appalachian Trail. That's the name of the mountain at the end of the AT. And uh, yeah, so, you know, if you if you just Google Dave Holman, hopefully I'll pop up somewhere in the result. I think there's like a soccer player and there's a music guy, you know, I'm, I'm pretty common. I like it. I like it. I like <laughs> common it. name. Uh, love to connect. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks for coming on the show. The links to everything that we discussed on today's show will be in the show notes, ladies and gents, especially those two books that Dave recommended. Dave, it's been a pleasure to have you on and we'll talk to you very, very soon. Thanks, Duray. Appreciate the opportunity.